Welcome to Don't Drink the Tea, the Agatha Christie podcast where we analyze our books one by one. I'm Josh. And I'm Charlotte. And today we're not talking about a book. We are having that special time where we get to talk about a film. Not just a movie, a film. A film, a picture. Uh, and it's been... A talkie? <laughs> yeah, a talkie. Yeah, they talk in this one. Um... I, don't, I think talkie, I think that's a fad. I think we're going to go back to silent pictures soon. I think that our listeners, if we still have any, which I hope we do, um, are probably wondering why we haven't talked about this yet. Yes, we have not talked about since, besides some cryptic Instagram post and one from like months ago where I said we're about to break our silence, we haven't talked about uh, A Haunting in Venice since our episode where we predicted what we thought it would be like. And that was before a trailer, a poster. That was just when it was announced. We did a quick prediction with, of course, we had Ken here with us. And we did a quick. Oh, yes. How how can one forget? Right. Of course, he's busy tonight. But uh, we had a quick episode predicting what we thought it would be like. And then we were mum on the whole thing and of course i had a vow that i was not going to be as annoying about this one on air i didn't say that about my <laughs> personal life i was not gonna be as annoying about this one on air as i was the previous and i think i kept that because yeah we were we were dead silent about it there was a little bit that we talked about with ariana oliver but for the most part we hadn't made any reference to it yeah and in real life we have like stopped ourselves from having that <laughs> conversation very much so i i mean i think we each have a general idea of how the other feels about it but we have not gone into specifics and spent an entire hour talking about you know like a a minute by minute uh commentary we have not done that so it's going to be so much fun because we haven't got to do that yes Um, yeah because we most of what we talked about was just about seeing it as it was building up and we talk we would talk about the trailer just between us but we i saved all of our all thoughts just for this one episode have you remembered them all absolutely yes because (laughs) i mean again like i was silent on the podcast but i was i i think the obsession was equal to this one as it was with death on the nile it's just that it was such a smaller window because covid delayed death on the nile years Right. So yeah. This one I didn't nearly have as much time to actually lose my mind, but it was just as as vivid. It haunted me. <laughs> so I think that your um your viewing experience is pretty awesome. It uh, honestly, I I don't know what I did to deserve it, but it was one of the my highlights of the year. So they had an advanced tell the good people about it (laughs) all right good people so they had an advanced screening of haunting in venice uh about two hours from my house i got a notification that it was going to happen and i had been looking at them for months and i got to see it way earlier than everybody else a solid 48 hours advanced screening it was tuesday and the movie was out thursday sweet (laughs) man how do you get those perks yeah i mean i was pretty much i mean i felt like i was going to see an unfinished version of the film and that they were going to take my notes um and ken was actually going to be there asking you what you thought the ending should be yeah you didn't make it uh uh but 
So yeah, it was two hours from my house and it was not, not nothing to drive for that. And I was so glad that I, cause I thought about it. Like, you know, I can see it at my local theater if I just wait 48 hours, but to be able to say I saw an advanced screening of an Agatha Christie movie, period, even if it's pure garbage, that's my dream <laughs> true. And Thankfully, since they want people to have a good time at these advanced screenings because it's about it's to create buzz, they rolled out the red carpet for us. So I got there two hours early because I was like, I know there's not going to be anybody waiting in line. But if I got there and I couldn't get a seat, that would end me like I would <laughs> still be weeping in the Regal Cinemas parking lot. And I was it's it was in a mall and I could not like locate the theater. I was running through the theater trying to find it. It was such a big mall. And when I got there, there were already people in line, only like four, but they were in line. And <laughs> they had this sign. I'm gonna I'm gonna post it where it was like a line for a haunting in Venice starts here. And I was like, it's just so cool that that exists. They had a giant skull out in the lobby with like the weird mask thing, like the poster had been up until close to the release. And the line did fill up. And they finally let us in. They gave us all masks, like the Michelle Yeoh uh, mask, and had us take pictures with the, the what is the ferryman, like the death, the plague. The, the gondolier. Yeah. Uh, so they had somebody with that. And they had them situated all around the theater, and they would not speak to you. They would just look at you and creep you out. And they gave us bookmarks, and they gave us all free drinks. And... The crowd was just so good. I sat next to a couple, like, I don't know, in, maybe in their 50s, middle-aged couple. And the the I was like, oh, I wish I wasn't sitting next to it. Because I was like, this guy is going to hate the movie. I could just tell from his energy. Like, he seemed so perturbed. And he was like, there's no way this thing's getting started on time. Like, it seemed like he did a lot of advanced screenings. He was like, oh, we're not getting started on time. And he was, <laughs> him and his wife were just perfect like seatmates because they reacted to every single thing with screams, laughter. It was amazing. And yeah, it was the perfect like Josh moment to see <laughs> two days early and for them to actually make it seem like it was a buzzworthy event. That was That's my still, yeah, I think it's still special. I mean, like you said, it's not the fact that you saw it two days before you know, right. the mass release. It's just the the idea that you can say, I have been to an advanced screening. I was invited. Yeah. And and like you said, only two hours from your house, you know, we don't live in a very accessible area. So it's not like, you know, you can just stand in line outside the theater and get those type of opportunities if you were in a major yeah. city. So, yeah. and, and, you know, the fact that it was, it was you, <laughs> it's kind of an experience that, you kind of deserve to have. And they had no idea. Like, you know, I'm sitting among these people who are probably like, whatever, we just get to see this movie for free. And I'm, I sitting, I sat dead center in the theater and I, I was just trying to like, not make myself look too excited. Cause I, at all times I was like, I'm going to get kicked out and something bad's going to happen. But you've got like the, the little happy shakes, like a, like a, a small breed of dog. Yes, like, Oh, exactly. I'm so Take happy. I'm here. Yes. <laughs> that was amazing, but I still want to hear about your viewing experience because I know it was unique as well. It was very unique. <laughs> it kept happening. Like it just, it wouldn't line up. And finally, I got to go to a small rural theater, which I have to say is always very clean. 
and the popcorn was fresh. They had just fixed their popcorn machine, which I know was a big problem for you. Yeah, I went and there was <laughs> but no it was <laughs> so it was it was me, and I thought it was going to be just me in the theater for a while. And there was one other woman who came, and she sat in the very very back, and I think like on the right side, and I sat in the next to the back row on the left. And so I felt I really wanted to like turn around and talk to her. So <laughs> I felt like it was kind of special that it was just the two of us. Uh -huh. um, but I didn't say anything. I was like, ah, I'm not going to be that weird. And also, I didn't know was she a Christie fan or was she just there because, OK, this is the only movie that was showing at three or whatever. Right. But yeah, that was uh, that was funny. That it was just the two of us. And also, we both realized that no one was going to care if we were on our cell phones. So yes. we were both on our cell phones a lot. Right. And neither one of us cared. So, so that was my extra special viewing experience. <laughs> I do like seeing a movie where there's so few people that you can text when you need to. Right. But it's also not the same, like, and this has only been um, like, movies that i've been to like older movies that have like a really dedicated fan base sometimes it's fun to be in a movie with a big audience that has a really good energy like they're so excited to be there or they're all diehard fans of whatever it is that you're watching that's kind of nice because you feel like there's more freedom to you know to laugh louder and right. and things like that but um yeah i kind of enjoyed being alone ish yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you had to. It was going to be sold out, and people were going to be hooting and hollering. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, because yeah, and and one of the uh, jump scares really got me. I know we'll we'll get to talking about that in content, and I kind of like I did something ridiculous, like gasped or threw something, and and then I kind of was like looking over my shoulder, like did did this one person in the theater <laughs> notice that I did that? I love that. I love a movie that makes us react. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a, across me in the theater, they were showing like one of the Star Wars TV shows. So yeah, there was like people there dressed up and like in the full makeup and costumes. So it felt like, yeah, at least we're over here. We're like, you know, more normal. And, uh, and it surprised me that a lot of the people, um, were just there as horror fans. Like they they didn't even have like a Christie knowledge. They were just like, yeah, it looks like it's fun and scary, which is definitely something I'll get to I think in my that's right. Setup. I think that's how they chose at least the marketing that I saw, that's how they chose to um to the, the audience that they were trying to reach. Exactly. Yeah. Um I'm going to talk about, before we get into content, just some quick fun facts about the uh, production that makes this unique among the trilogy. It's the most unique okay. among them. It's it's different from the other two. Um, it has a $40 million less budget than Death on the Nile. So they made this one on the cheap. Wow. Death on the Nile was $100, $100 million, Haunting in Venice, $60 million. It was probably celebs alone, but also they had like one set in this one. And, you know, they had a lot more going on in Death on the Nile. Yeah, that's funny that you say that because I was looking at the cast because I was trying to find out the name of the bird. 
Harry. And well, yeah, is, what real life. Yeah, yeah. but his, <laughs> his actual name. It is not listed anywhere I that I can either, find. Yeah. <laughs> so you looked, okay. Yes. <laughs> but I was surprised by the list of cast because it was like, I think it was 26 cast members total. And that's even like the tiniest parts except for the bird, which rude. Um, (laughs) but then some of the other departments, like, cause you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of people to make a film, but I was looking at it and I'm like, wow, this was seemed very small, very scaled back, which I think is kind of cool. That feels like kind of an old fashioned way to do it. Exactly. Yep. Um, this one had, if kept the pattern of, uh, taglines, Orient Express had everyone's a suspect. Death on the Nile had murder was just the beginning. Venice had death was only the beginning and death comes for everyone. It had two different tags. Um, it had a different composer than the first two, which I thought was interesting. The first two was Patrick Doyle, who did the very classical st- score. This one was, I didn't put down their full, full name, but Hilda or something. And very like atonal, you know, horns and stuff like that. Um, yeah, uh, Suspects. Orient Express has 12, Death in the Nile has 11, and Haunting Venice only has six. So they cut down on mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, I also tracked how many awards the cast had won for each one. Because um, Murder on the Orient Express, there are eight or, oh, Oscars, I mean. In Orient Express, there were eight Oscars, Death in the Nile, three, and Haunting Venice, only two. Okay, uh, I didn't hear you. It, it might have just been my audio. How many Oscars... Is okay. this wins or how many people in the cast had won an Oscar? Had been uh, in the cast that had been nominated for an Oscar at least. Oh, okay, okay. How many yeah. for? Orient Express was eight. Okay. Death in the Nile, three, and Venice, two. Okay. And I'm doing bad fingers that didn't match the, uh, the number I was saying. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Man, I'm having a terrible time reading my... Sometimes I just put, like, random numbers down. Like, Venice 76, Orient 60, and Nile 61. I don't know what that means. But also... <laughs> also, Venice is a uh, half hour shorter than yes. the other two. And so... Right. It also had a completely different marketing s- scheme where they kept it secret for such a long time. And the poster changed the style that they had kept for the last two. And so this movie was definitely playing at... At first, they announced the first trailer. A ton of people didn't know it was a Christie movie because they kept Poirot until the very end. Right. And I think that was a lot of the marketing scheme. Like you said, I think they were trying to get horror fans. And the Christie thing was kind of like, a okay, and an afterthought because... Death on the Nile was such a flop because of all of the factors that cursed it into making money and it lost so much money that horror movies, no matter how trashy they are, almost always make their budget back because people will randomly go see a horror movie because they just want to be scared. Yeah, Whereas, which is odd it's to my mind. I mean, I get escapism, but I I don't watch yeah. horror movies, so I was... I just kind of thought that was weird. That, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, I'll go see that just because it's that's the genre that it is. But yeah, a lot, a lot of people do that. Yeah, just to be spooked. So I think that was kind of like, okay, you get one more and with this promise of at least we'll get a, a new crowd because I don't think young people were seeing the the last one necessarily and this one gets them a new demographic. 
Okay. That's yeah, there were a lot of things that Sorry. I, Sorry, I've got a delay. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, I've got a delay too. Yeah, it's all right. It's Zoom for you. Go ahead. You say you're missing. <laughs> It'll sound so great later. Yeah. I, there was a lot of things that people had issues with. I've been talking about it just in general. Like people um, who wrote reviews or even critics that people kept saying were problems with the first two. And I feel like, you know, Ken Brana, I can't, I can't, I'm not on first names. I can't do it. Sorry. I have That's to say it. his whole name. Yeah. <laughs> that he took that into account and he made changes based on what people had said. Maybe, I mean, maybe not based on what they had said, but he did make changes of things that people complained about. And then in general, people still didn't really care for this one. At least, I mean, not everybody, but there was a lot of negativity again. And it just, really surprised me i'm like oh you just can't make people happy but i don't think that's what he's making them for i think he yeah. made them because he really wanted to and there was there was an appetite for it or he wouldn't have made three mm -hmm. so but yeah they like you said they people complained it was too long it took it all oh, the introductions of the characters were too long even though that's kind of the way uh christie goes modern audiences can't don't like that so he so he shortened it up oh the cast was too big you had all these a-listers and and you know great people but they only got one line each so he cut that back cut back the time all this stuff and then people were still negative but yeah not that There's i'm saying it was like a hundred percent knocked it out of the park. I have issues with it, but right. I feel like people are unfair to him, to his filmmaking in general. I don't know. Definitely agree. I will say this one is uh, better received than the last two, even though it's not like it was getting lauded. Um, and I do now that you said that I can read some of my notes better where I was putting like, Oh, on IMDb uh, in at the beginning uh, Orient Express had a 6.5, Death on the Nile 6.3, Venice 6.8. So it was the highest of the three. And uh, on Letterboxd, Orient Express has a 3.0, Nile a 2.6, and Venice had a 3.1. So again, it was the highest of the three. And a lot of reviews, even though no one was like, for the most part, critics weren't like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Uh a lot of them were saying, okay, this is the, the best of the three. This is the best one yet. And I saw a lot of people saying like, yeah, I saw that not, a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not great, but it's a lot of fun. And that seemed like they like to approach that. Like they had fun viewing it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. So yeah. The, I Some people were, and, and again, I just read like some IMDB reviews, um, which aren't always fair, but some people were like really angry. Like it was one person gave it one star and said it should never have seen a light of day. And it was the worst movie ever made. And how could anyone let this happen? And I'm like, it, you must've never actually seen a bad movie because, yeah. you know, we've all seen some really bad movies that we felt that way about, but I can't imagine. And they weren't even like, like a Christie fan. It wasn't that they were upset about the source materials. Because that's one thing that a lot of people complained about was that it was so, so thinly based mm -hmm. on Halloween Party that that was kind of like a eh, issue for people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this was just like this. This movie was total crap. I don't know. Those people were in a really bad mood. Yeah. That day. And the Christie fan base 
has already rejected these movies completely. And so right. I, I, I was just saying, I feel so bad for whoever runs the Agatha Christie uh, Instagram page and has to like monitor comments to make sure that nobody's saying anything insane in there. And they have to post the trailers, the posters, and I'll just read through everybody's saying the same exact thing, which is, no, David Suchet is Poirot. These must be stopped. Why don't you just make a new movie? Like, it's got to be so tiring. And this time I did control myself. I didn't go through and read them and reply to everybody. But uh, <laughs> everybody says the same thing. And most of the time it's the Christie fans that have the really hateful reaction. And they would be really mad too, because like you said, that was the um, other, the the new thing about it is that it was actually because they said death in the nile is nothing like the book that's not true each changes a bunch but it is mostly but, the plot but this one is very loosely based yes i mean he said it in venice he didn't set it in space yeah like that i could understand would be a little irksome you would really feel like something was very lost and this was i i don't understand some of the choices like why it was in venice why it had the the um dynamic that it did uh, some of it was a little confusing as far as that goes like you know it was why did you even say it was based on it was more like inspired by halloween party but it yeah it, it wasn't like it was fan fiction it wasn't so far yeah. off in left field that it was unidentifiable yeah. i don't know I, I don't understand i mean yes we all know david suchet is the 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 what is that quintessential interpretation right. of Poirot? That's totally fine, but it doesn't mean he's got a lock on it. He, even he doesn't want that. Um, I meant to send you a link, but I think you had already read it. Um, somebody asked David Suchet on a talk show what he thought of the movies, and he said that he has yeah. not watched them, and he never would because he didn't want to be critical. And he was like, nobody needs to know what I think. You know, go Ken. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did actually see that. And I, I love that approach. But because, you know, it might not be for you. But like, you know, Albert Finney's not for some people. Peter Eustonov was not for somebody. Just because somebody did it so well doesn't mean I don't want another take on it. And after Ken or during Ken, I want 10 million takes on Poirot. Uh, right. What, what is the new show? We we talked about it. I texted about it a little bit with... um. Uh, it was the Hulu show where they said, oh, the guy is doing like a Poirot take, you know, a take on Poirot, but it wasn't actually playing Poirot. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's Hulu's new show, which I have not yeah, seen. I haven't watched it. I just and none of the reviews are very good, which is kind of yeah, funny. But it, it was Mandy yeah. Pat Pattington Pattington. Yeah. Uh, famous for the princess bride he was indigo Montoya. yeah paddington bear um and he's i think he's playing an english character mm -hmm. but apparently has similarities to poirot's methodology and it's like yeah that's fine you know I, but i just wanted <laughs> i what i my point was i'd be like let him play poirot like i'd love that like yeah i don't like uh john malkovic as his the take on poirot but i never had any problem with him having a stab at it and like, I mean, have Ryan Reynolds play Poirot for all I care. It'll be horrible. But give <laughs> me more Christie to go see. Right, right. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. Oh, so, man, that's that hurts. So, yeah, yeah I guess. It would be, it'd be bad. Oh, what were you going to say? 
No, I was I was just gonna say we have to find a way. I think to talk about all the things that happen in the movie in a way that's not just us jumping all around. Um, we don't have to talk shot by shot. Yeah. Um, why don't? Because <laughs> I I'm gonna transfer to a room with a better internet connection. While I do that, why don't you tell the good people what Halloween Party is about, roughly, and then what the movie's about, if you can. I will try. Remember what the movie's about because I know it's been a couple months. The movie I think I can roughly recall. It's Halloween Party that I'm really rusty on. Yeah. All right. And I don't. I don't have you around to to correct me. But I mean, are you going to be able to hear? One minute. Yeah, I'll correct you as soon as I get to the couch. Okay. Well, that that makes me feel better. I was uncomfortable with being, you know, left on my own. Okay. So Halloween Party was. Uh, one of Christie's later works, I believe, not terribly late, but not one in her, like her golden age or her her prime. And it was Poirot and also Ariadne Oliver, which was another one of her reoccurring characters, uh, who is a writer, um, are attending a, a children's party. But there is there are children there, and it's like a an active Halloween party for lots of different people. Why? Poirot was there. Can't remember. And when Josh comes back, he'll tell us. <laughs> but anyway, a kind of kind of dark. Um, one of the children at the parties at the party is killed, and then so that is Poirot and Miss Oliver trying to discover uh, who the culprit was. Now that was set in you know your typical small English village in the 50s, maybe? I'm probably wrong about the dates. Um, but then Haunting in Venice is set in, it is it is a children's Halloween party at like a, a what used to be an orphanage. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> and um, it is post-war, post-World War II, so okay. talking like 1945, 1946. Okay. And Poirot has gone into retirement after the events of Death on the Nile, and he refuses to take any cases. And that's some of the opening shots are him at his villa and people lining up outside his door every single morning to get him to take cases, and he just simply refuses. Um, and then he gets drawn into this by Ariadne Oliver. Um and it is not a child that dies in this one. Um, all of the victims are adults. Which is nice. Okay. How much did, <laughs> how much did I get wrong? <laughs> not a whole lot. So uh Halloween Party is is was written in the 60s. I think it's oh, like okay. last five that she's written. It's uh one of the very last Poirots. I think there's maybe one more after it. And but yeah, and Poirot's not actually at the Halloween party. Ariadne Oliver's there and she calls him and is like, I'll never eat an oh. apple again because the little girl is drowned bobbing for apples. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And she was that was her um that was her her trope or her um identifying mark is that she was apples. always eating apples, yeah. Which is in this movie, yeah. And so the the way that they kind of redo that, it's a Halloween party. In the book, Halloween Party, it's the little kid who says, I saw a murder and no one believes them. And then the kid gets drowned uh, bobbing for apples. So then people are like, okay, did she actually see a murder? And in this, it's, uh, like you said, an adult, but it is supposed to be a medium 
who is seeing this murder that has happened and that person is killed in venice like you said and yeah, yeah and right and the i'm i'm really unclear because i only watched it once and that was in the theater with the one right. lady Me who too. was my yeah i mean i i i watched it while i was like doing and something how, once how, how many times i think i saw it in theaters. oh okay really no i think i saw it in theaters four times liar four or five no i okay. genuinely do not remember i think four or five i i can count saw it the it's first fine time no 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 it's fine it's fine first time at the advanced screening oh, second yeah. time at the alamo third time by myself fourth time where i took my mom yes four times okay <laughs> so i am unclear on the relationship of everybody who was there i know that the main character is besides poirot and ariadne oliver is a woman who was like a famous opera singer and she had a daughter and they were super close and then she they're living in this villa and it's like falling down and they can't afford to repair it um which is part of the aesthetic but it seems like kind of a weird plot point to be honest besides just the look of it which was cool the look of it was very neat but beautiful yeah other, other than that, it was not really didn't have much of a plot. And the daughter had died like, what, 10 years ago or something like that. And uh, this yeah, it was like it was a couple years ago. OK, yeah, no, it <laughs> and was, the it was mother an exact year ago. Yeah. Oh, OK. No, silly me. Um, and so the mother was like so distraught and was trying to um, like get some closure with that her daughter had had drowned correct but had yeah. nothing to do with bobbing for apples yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and so and there was the, it was the site of an old orphanage right and there was like yeah. a an old legend about there was a curse that the mm -hmm. the little kids had been locked in during the plague and so yeah that the place yeah. was wanted right um yeah and so then uh ariadne oliver gets poirot to come because she's saying you know this medium uh that um the mother's name is rowena drake which is also from hall they they borrow most of the names from the book uh rowena drake is having this medium you know do a seance to contact her daughter and i want you to come because uh, you need to find out how she's doing it because I'm seeing things that I, like she can't be faking. And so Poirot reluctantly agrees to go um, and, because like he's supposed to be in retirement, but Ariadne Oliver is his old friend. And so that's what happens when, the, when they get there, this happens. And uh, during the seance, uh, the medium Joyce Reynolds, the same name as the little girl in Halloween party uh, claims to see that somebody's murdered the daughter, she didn't fall into the water. She was pushed. Uh, but then shortly after that, the medium is killed. And so then they lock the house. Uh, the police can't get there because it's there's flooding. And Poirot starts his investigation with help from Ariadne. So that's the basic plot. Yeah. Of haunting and him. there's other people. The other characters are the ones that I can't remember why they're there. There's a doctor yeah. and his little boy. Yeah. So... Okay. Right. Um, there's the doctor, Poirot's like not his bodyguard, bodyguard. or pretty much his body. I mean, I know why he's there. Yeah. Okay, and then there's a brother and sister. I cannot remember <laughs> they were there. Oh, this yeah. is terrible. I just so remember the, <laughs> the woman who was like 
like the like the opera singers like not her best friend but like her her not even her maid i don't know like her companion who did everything she for was her. like yeah she was like the daughter's governess i think um and okay. so she yeah, i remember then, her but i genuinely have no idea when he, how those why yeah. those other people were there and the doctor <laughs> was the doctor to um rowena drake's daughter alicia that that was the doctor and he has a son the little boy and the two that uh, oh right because the daughter was supposed to be sick for a really long yeah. time right like she had a, an ongoing illness yeah okay and so there's the doctor and um uh, the two the boy and the girl the twins um i don't know if they're twins but the brother and sister work for joyce reynolds the medium they come with her and they oh, are that's right they're refugees yeah <laughs> Oh, that's the nice thing about not remembering anything. It's new to you every yeah. time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like you said, the daughter Alicia had madness and they say that it was like it became because the house was haunted and she was like talking about voices and seeing things. And they're like saying that the ghost drove her to jump out the window and drowned. Yeah. yeah. And so even though that's a lot of backstory it none of that is really it, it comes in little short bursts um yeah. it's mostly just the the action taking place is just the events of a single overnight yeah 24 hours right yeah and um the even the movie wastes no time it's got to be like the five minute mark when ariadne oliver is like you're coming with me to this and this is what's happening and yeah, the movie yeah. is very, very tight. And I think it was re reactionary to the more indulgent Death on the Nile. Like this one is very economical in how it chooses it to develop uh, the story. And yeah, I think which it does is a good fine. Job. It, yeah, it didn't feel rushed, I didn't think, because that was just the nature of the way that they filmed it, is that there's a lot of stuff going on very quickly you didn't and I, I understand why some people don't like those big long setups i always enjoy that and i know we've talked yeah. about that before i like settling in getting to know everybody um waiting because you don't know exactly when someone's gonna crack but this just this just starts instantly and there's really no time to relax through the entire thing which says something about his his direction like it, it was one of the complaints i read in um some of the reviews is that well uh, nobody knew what type of movie they were making. Everybody there was making a different movie, and I didn't get that impression. I don't think so. Yeah, I think no, because like they were like, oh well, some people, yeah, some people thought it was horror, some people thought it was comedy. It was like the times that Poirot was funny. He was very funny. Like he does an excellent job of delivering Poirot's humor. I think. Mm -hmm. And that it's unfair that people criticize that because I think he does it very well. Oh, um, I never got a feeling that there was any conflict about what type of movie they were making. Um, but now yeah. the performances, <laughs> those weren't all fantastic. But um, and I think pretty much, I mean, not that the movie isn't scary because it definitely has scary moments, but it was the marketing that made it look like the movie was trying to be the most terrifying movie ever made. That's just the marketing. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with the people who made the movie most of the time. And I thought the trailers were well done, but it, like we talked about it before, they make 
very innocent moments in the movie where there's a moment where Kenneth Branagh walks up to the bucket of apples and in the trailer, they make that look like a murderer approaching somebody. And it's literally just somebody walking and watching the movie. Some of the things they make look like would have been a scary scene is just a scene. So I can see how people would go in saying like, yeah, this is going to be scary. And if you are watching things that are actually true horror, you're not going to be scared. But for the crowd of like 60 year olds who like to pop on (laughs) a Poirot movie that it's probably going to be a little tense. Yeah, and 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 again, I I don't watch horror and I won't. Um it it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um but I did not think in any way that this was not tense. Like I mean, even if you don't watch horror, you know the formula. Like it it has its rules. You know that there's you know where the jump scares are coming. You know when the music starts or stops, what's going to happen. Um, the camera angles, like that type of stuff is just kind of, everybody knows about that. And and I don't feel like this one was like hidebound by that because, I mean, the, the jump scares were never for what you thought they were going to be. At least I didn't think so. Yeah. And I, like I said, I don't watch scary movies, so I didn't, but I, you know, I've watched suspenseful movies, but this was probably the most tense yeah. film I've watched in a very, very yeah. long time. And it was awesome. mostly that stupid bird. Yeah. He had a lot of, he had a lot of moments. Harry the bird. <laughs> Harry the bird. Um, so, yeah. So let's start, I guess. Yeah. With the story. So uh, you talked about some of the things like you weren't, sure what why they were there um but yeah that's that's, generous that was pretty much everything i was like i don't know anything that's going on did i even watch this movie no i mean like (laughs) things that you didn't think that uh that they should be like you know it didn't make sense that they were there so um what did you think about like i'm trying to think of how to even discuss it so for like for instance the first 10 minutes or like i said even five minutes of seeing poirot in his new setting i thought they did a really nice job of that of giving the movie um the movie had like levity and there were moments where it was like because the beginning those first five to ten minutes are nice and relaxed uh venice is beautiful because we won't get to see venice through most of the movie so i think they get to show it off a little bit and it's not green screens they shot on location and it's very very beautiful and i liked seeing poirot being retired growing his vegetable marrows and <laughs> getting so many sweets delivered to him all the time. I, I, I like this sequence a lot. I think it, it was a nice way to get maybe not liking the dark place. It was supposed to end in the last one with the shave mustache and the club. Like this was like, okay, no, we're back to form now, even though he's not investigating cases, he's back to himself. Yeah. I liked that part. What did you think about it? Mm-hmm. I hadn't given it much thought. I, I really enjoyed enjoyed the character which i should have looked up their names um the character of his yeah his bodyguard, bodyguard was yeah. really interesting because when i first saw him i'm like oh that must be george who was in the some uh, of the yeah. short stories and some of the later books was his his like mm-hmm. butler or um who was around a lot and then i thought oh that must be him or that was the inspiration for him but this guy was uh he was Italian. He was an ex-cop. Yeah. And he was like <laughs> Poirot's muscle, kind of. And I 
was surprised by that element and I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the aesthetic of him sitting on the roof with like the trellis that had nothing growing on it was very odd to me. Mm. And maybe that's something that I just didn't get. Like when you explained to me the, the, the people sitting at the table in the snow in murder on the Orient Express that always bothered me. And then you explained that it was, uh, did you lose me? Am I still there? Yeah. yeah I can hear you. Yep. Okay, sorry. Um, the, you explained that it was supposed to be like a tableau of the Last Supper, and I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, I'm just a Philistine. So I don't know if there was some sort of, you know, vision that I, or, um, you know, thing that I was supposed to catch about that that I didn't, but it just kind of felt weird to me. Like, I feel like he would have had an umbrella or something. <laughs> I know. I think, like, no symbolism. I think they genuinely were like, we need to show Venice while we can. And- yeah everybody getting an opportunity to go film in Venice. Because I think those three, um, Brana, Tina Fey, and the actor's name is Ricardo Scamarcio. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. But those were <laughs> the ones that I, we all said, I took the the big candid pictures of them on set. <laughs> so they're the only people that are actually in Venice because the house is, right. I mean, they film some in a house, but a lot of it is in a studio. It's a set, yeah. Yeah, 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 in a set. So um, I think they, you know, he he can't have anything blocking it because they got to be like, here is Venice. And I, I liked it because it was like, I want them to show Venice and I want them to be like, there's no green screens here because again, that was such a big complaint about Death on the Nile was all of the green screens. Yeah. So but one of the uh, reviews that I saw was entitled, it was five, uh, five stars out of 10. It was entitled, Ken really does love his Dutch angles. Oh, yes. The movie begins with a Dutch angle. The very, the, the second shot, the like the second cut is a Dutch angle. <laughs> Somebody said, someone else said that um, if you get motion sickness, you probably shouldn't go. Oh, yeah, because there's a lot of body cam, too. <laughs> yeah, so then immediately Tina Fey gets him to go to the house. And there's such the such a beautiful shot of the gondolas going into the to dock at the house. And there's fireworks in the sky and it reflects on the water. It is just such a beautiful shot. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I loved all the gondola stuff, which can't last long. And then they get into the house. And yeah, the house, each room of the house is so, yeah, decrepit and like the old, beautiful, gothic style that's like wasting away. Like yeah. every room has really neat stuff in it and a lot to look yeah. at. Like every room has statues, like taxiderm birds. Every room right. has unique wallpaper. Or just a like in, in one place, it's like a just a big stack of giant guild framed mirrors that are just stacked up in a corner like yeah it it gave a very good uh, impression of like a fall from grace kind of thing like there's no money here like you're barely surviving you you lived in five rooms now you live in two rooms um yeah that was that was neat but it it was very the lighting was a little off and maybe that's just me being um, yeah. almost 40 years old. I was kind of like, you know, could you just turn one more light on, please? Yeah, it was dark in a lot of scenes. I liked, I liked the, the the color palette, but yeah, it was usually dark blues and stuff like that. And 
again, a, another thing I appreciate it is how different it is from the previous two. Like Orient Express is very bright white because it's the snow. Death in the right. Mouth, right? Orange. And mm-hmm. this movie, it is like dark, dark green a lot. And there's a lot of dark green. You're right. And it's yeah. mostly, like you said, almost entirely interior shots. It's all at night, um, which does contribute and not even in a cliche way to the claustrophobia of it. Like even just sitting in the theater, like you really don't want to be in this house. Like mm-hmm. there's always, you know, that's, that's a locked room thing or a, a house that you can't leave. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. done a lot. And usually it's kind of like, Oh, settle in, you know, that's the, it's kind of the cozy part of it, but it's like, no, th- this house is uncomfortable. Like I, I don't like being here. <laughs> so <laughs> Which I think, is, you know, was created on purpose. So I think as we go through the plot, it makes sense to hit the performances throughout. So the big one, and I think it's the one that most people would talk about besides Ken, Tina Fey as Ariadne Oliver, what do you think? Disappointed. Mm. Did that come through? Yes. <laughs> okay, you froze and I was like, it was that because of what I said or you didn't hear me? No, no, no. Yeah, I heard <laughs> Disappointed. I wanted I wanted to be very excited by it and I didn't nothing against her she's a great uh she's a great actor she's done a lot I think she has a a, a great range it just it just didn't work for me personally something was off she felt too um abrasive and, and like it was she it never felt like there was any banter between her and Poirot like it was fun lighthearted banter like they were friends I I never ever felt that they were actually friends I felt like she was just kind of antagonistic the whole time and was determined to always be right which isn't necessarily out of character but one thing about Ariadne Oliver she was she was she was always like I'm right I'm right I know I'm right and then she's like am I I could be totally wrong you know yeah I don't know I was I was not as happy as I thought I would be. What what about you? Yeah, the the relationship is not and uh, of course they're like introducing it as the first one. They don't have the banter, yeah, that we can that they have in the books or in the show. Um and she has to deliver some of the worst lines cuz she's got to dump a lot of exposition. And mm-hmm. so and there's a couple scenes where she has to be kind of more dramatic because she's a she is a comic relief character so it's not like she's acting too far out of it's not like she's doing crying scenes or anything like that so there's a couple scenes where she has to be serious and and i just didn't buy it i think Mm -hmm. she's pretty good at the end of the movie uh well she has like a one-on-one scene with kenneth Branagh that i think she's pretty good at um i don't hate it of course it's not ariadne oliver uh as we know it i don't hate it but yeah i wasn't uh in love with it and i think her existence in the movie causes some of the biggest problems too yeah which isn't like i don't you know because these are you know real people who probably did their best in every situation but there was just something that was like no i'm sorry Mm -hmm. you you know not blaming it on you you know maybe you weren't feeling well but some of the performances were just bad or or kind of missing the mark because it and i know part of it is the um the the subplot that they did with ariadne i didn't really care for um her deceiving him yeah like and and i know i know why they did that it was for people who were unfamiliar with christy it's like oh let's introduce this 
big element of what if, you know, right. oh, you can suspect everybody, literally everybody. And it's like, okay, so going to complain from a, a point of view of if you know Christy, you're going to be like, no, no one's ever going to buy that. So I think maybe that's where some of the irritation came from is that uh -huh. she was flip-flopping back and forth between, hey, I'm a good friend, although yeah. it's kind of obvious we just met. <laughs> right. And also I'm here to like deceive you yeah. and, you know, make you doubt everything you know about me. And that just didn't work. It just didn't work. Yeah, that's my biggest problem with the movie. And of course, we'll call spoilers for the, the whole movie. Obviously, we spoil everything we talk about. Um, my biggest problem with the movie is because, like, I, I don't really have a, a, a issue with the idea that they would have Ariadne Oliver trying to trick him because it kind of felt a little bit like a Christy being tired of Poirot kind of thing. Like, I kind of felt like they started with that idea. But the issue is, and if you've seen the movie, you'll understand, so uh, Tina Fey or, or Ariane Oliver and the bodyguard, they're like, work, they work together with the medium to get Poirot here. But like they both have different motives. Like the bodyguard actually wants to find out who killed the girl because it's haunted him because he was the cop on the case. So I think a right. better way to do that movie would have been cut out Tina Fey of that if it was just him that did that. Like, I think that could right. be a little more compelling and you could understand his actions a little better. He has a little more to lose with not telling Poirot why he wants him there. And it's less, he tricks him to get there, but it's not tricking after the fact. But yeah. And, and that would, you would believe that because, you know, yeah. Poirot hadn't known him for that long. And if this guy was taking a job for the world's greatest detective, like you could yeah. see why he would, he would try to do that. Um, yeah, but adding that as coming, like as Ariadne Oliver was the mastermind of this whole thing to basically get Poirot out of the house just felt so more books felt like a little silly. But the pro real problem is when, so during the seance, she helps make it seem more unrealistic. I mean, like, you know, more shocking. She helps open the window. She takes Baba the rabbit. Um, but yeah, I know the rabbit's name. But uh, the bad thing is, okay, so put yourself in that place. Say you're pulling the trick on Hercule Poirot, you're Tina Fey pulling the trick on Hercule Poirot so you can sell books, right? Michelle Yeoh dies, right? She is murdered. At that moment, wouldn't you not say, okay, hey, wait, I messed up. Like, I got her here. She was not actually a, a medium. So whoever killed her killed the, the girl. And the rest of it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> right. I mean, you would think she would fill her in. And so, so, okay. Maybe she's like, okay, I can't say that at risk of incriminating myself, but she continues with the ruse because she does the thing where she's like, how did Baba the rabbit get over here after Michelle Yeoh has already died? And it's like, yeah, the, the issue is she should have filled him in. And second off, you would think that her and the bodyguard would be like, wait a minute. We actually are sort of responsible for Michelle Yeoh's death. Like, if we hadn't started with this ruse, she uh -huh. would not have died. But the, I don't think the writers, and this is the same thing with Death on the Nile, when they add something to a Christie, not that Christie never had plot holes, but when they add a new plot to surprise audiences, I don't have any issue with that, but I don't think they usually think about the repercussions of the thing. Yeah. And that plot point is like, okay, yeah, but they, they cause the death of a person and then don't 
say so after like I think immediately a normal person would be like I gotta level with you like this is what we did and this the only way you're gonna solve this is if we tell you that part because that would hinder it right and And how many times has that happened you know and maybe not probably in her books but also in like the the movies and stuff where it's been like oh it's a murder party and then the the victim actually gets killed like that's happened before and yeah that's the first thing people did they're like oh well this was our idea but you know this this was we had nothing to do with this but mm-hmm. yeah and she was so like over eager to find the clues and i know yeah. i couldn't wow. tell if that was just like was supposed to show that she wasn't very good at her job <laughs> but it just yeah it didn't now, fall and that it didn't my- land excuse me it did fall it didn't land <laughs> That is my biggest issue with the movie that I have like two more big ones. And I think that's it, but that's the biggest issue. But I do like that she is in the movie because (laughs) for Orient Express and death on the Nile, once the murder has happened, usually that's when the comedy ends. Usually Poirot is no longer funny and he gets really serious and the movies kind of slow down because it doesn't have like, you know, in the Suchet or in the old seventies ones, there was still, fun things happening after the murder just in the interrogations you can have jokes whatever most of the time with those two movies it gets a little too serious but with this one since she is there as a little bit of comic relief not that all of her jokes are working uh Ronis Poirot gets to be a lot less uptight I guess and even though the movie is about him like trying to come to terms with this stuff he's trying to get over with I think he has more fun in this movie than he has had in the previous two. Like he has yes, more personality. He gets to tell jokes and we get to see him. The other movies aren't like that interested in his actual, like having fun when he investigates, seeing the gears turn in his head. Whereas mm-hmm. this one is a little more like he does a little more work when he's doing those investigations before he's losing his mind. Uh, so <laughs> I don't love what's going on with her, but I appreciate what it helps the movie accomplish i guess yeah yeah because i'd say Um, sorry no go ahead because i would say uh rana's performance in here is like is better than orient express because the movie doesn't have to do what the last two does where he has to have the end be like crying and be like this is so personal to me he can just be the detective and that's okay yeah yeah, he was he was kind of I mean he was tired, I think, for the first third of the movie. He was just tired. And he just didn't want to be there. And then yeah, and, and then he was being uh drugged. Um yeah. which I again have to say, just just my tiny moment, I figured it all out. Nice by the end. And I was mm-hmm. I was proud of myself for for that. <laughs> did you did you know what was happening i didn't i know i didn't know the honey stuff um and i was like pleasantly surprised by that but i knew who the oh okay had to be because of the just because of the book right yeah but no i didn't figure that out and i thought that was uh, that was clever because it's that's not in the source material so i thought that was a clever addition with the with the mad honey right yeah, which is a fact that I only learned about three or four years ago, and I thought it was like one of the coolest things I'd ever heard. So that was like a fangirl moment, like, oh, yeah. cool, they're doing this. Like, I wonder if they're doing this, and they are, and so that's what this and that, and 
so that was that was kind of satisfying. But then I also thought it must be really obvious if I figured it out. <laughs> but apparently not. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think that part is obvious. Specialized I, knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I do think the killer is obvious, though. And I think the killer is too obvious because the all again, even uh, Death on the Nile faults with this. And, and it keeps the original ending is that, you know, Christie's not afraid to put everything up in front of our face. So she's not afraid to be like, well, well, the mother would be a suspect, right? So, but since everybody kind of is like, well, the mother wouldn't do it in this movie, you're automatically going to suspect the mother. I think they are afraid yeah. to play as fair as, as Christy does. In fact, at the end, when Poirot mm -hmm. says the murderer would have to be, and he does his dramatic pause, the guy next to me went, the mom. And then he said, <laughs> the mother. And the guy like did a little of <laughs> Um, that's fabulous. I do think and, that's a little and, okay, obvious. But... Okay, so and and in, in comparison, because uh, Mary Riley is her name, right? Yeah, I think she did a beautiful job with her whole performance, and she had to do a lot yes. of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. She she did a lot of of acting gymnastics in that, I think. And I personally felt that she pretty much nailed it. I mean, it was a little hokey at the very very end, uh, but that's always a difficult switch mm -hmm. that's always a difficult turnover when you go from what to haha of course it was me um yeah. but in general like the the things that tina fey did like kind of blatantly obvious i felt like mary riley had much more subtlety to it and it was just kind of cool having her there and i i like that she's had such a huge role because um i don't know what else she's famous for I know she's famous for other things that aren't Christie related, but of course she yeah. was in Sad Cypress. She did right. an excellent job. She was the victim in that. And also in the Robert Downing Jr. Oh, uh, yeah, Sherlock yeah. Holmes, she, yeah, she is uh, Watson's wife, Mary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's just, it's, I, I'm always like, oh, it's like an old friend whenever she pops up anywhere. So I, I thought as the villain i thought she did a nice job i thought she did an excellent job I, I think her performance was really good one thing i really liked that they did was at the beginning at uh or when they're interrogating her and she's up on the the rooftop um she they're they're investigating they're interrogating her and while she's up there she spots the murder the weapon she killed uh joyce reynolds with and has to kick it under the uh the uh like under something but you watch all this happen during the movie which i always love vis visual clues where you watch the murderer do something but you they where they're bold enough to show you and i thought it was odd mm -hmm. that she did it and later i realized what she did but she did such a good job of like of showing that where later on you would realize what she was doing but yeah i thought she did a, a really good job at all of the beats that she needed mm -hmm. to do because yeah, the movie asked a lot of her and she did deliver. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so what is, so to keep this from being like three hours long, yeah. <laughs> um, what is your next thing that like you took issue with? Okay. Yeah. So I think we have the same issue. The worst performance of the movie and Close to the worst performance of the entire trilogy, if Army Hammer probably didn't exist, maybe that was kind of my thought, is uh, <laughs> is the Doctor as played by Jamie Dornan. This uh -huh. is so bad. It's really bad. It's so bad. I kept wondering, what 
what was he doing? Like, you know, somebody said the movie was so bad it should have been stopped, which is not true. But like, he was so bad he should have been stopped. He it was, was like, bad. did no one give you an ounce of? Did you not listen to anything Ken said for three months? Now, and to give him some credit, I think I think that is a hard role to do because he has to play like the adult PTSD doctor. But it's like he is always at 10, always. Like I wrote in my notes, there's the scene where Poirot's like, well, you're a doctor, but you failed to notice this when you like check the body. And he goes, why is everybody looking at me? Do you think I'm a loony? And then he picks up a chair and throws it against the wall. And it's like, he goes, you think I'm a loony and does the looniest thing. He was like a loony tune in front of them. <laughs> it's just such a, like a caricature of... Which is yes, and also really it, out of place in the rest of the movie. Which I think, besides yeah. Tina Fey, has a really good tone for the people's the tragic things they're dealing with. Right, and and that's another. I think one of the things that bothers me the most is because of like if you want to get all Shakespearean on it, like the role of Doctor with a capital D in right. in the Christie universe is its own thing it is a whole character study and i feel like if you and it's a juicy role in any mm -hmm. of her books any of her adaptations if you were given the role of doctor in a christie book or movie you should be like oh wow and you should read every single doctor she ever wrote and you would know exactly how to play it even with you know like a, a tragic past and, and um you know a nervous condition and stuff like that but there were there were no layers whatsoever just like you said there was, was and even the poor little boy who was who was incredible like i didn't know a child could act that well even really when he's in scenes with the, the guy who's playing his dad with with jamie dorn who's it's like even the poor kid can't save the scenes because when he's with the kid he's like oh. i'm sorry i'm such a bad dad yeah it's rough no oh. Yeah, I don't know. I was like, I flip flop like this or Army Hammer. I couldn't pick, but uh, it might be this because Army Hammer's bad scenes are there, but he's bad. This guy's bad the entire time, right? <laughs> Except for when he's not saying anything. Um, <laughs> but he has that look on his face. He has one. Yeah. Well, he has two expressions. I'm sorry. He's either like crying about how bad his life is, or you know, like staring why is everyone looking at me kind of thing yeah i think i'm a loony yeah um <laughs> i yeah. mean okay think back like for example and i'm sure you thought of this as well russell brand as yeah. what character did he play the doctor lord windlesham <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and his job, his yeah. performance which we talked about which is really odd because it's russell brand was undersold like he really dialed it back so what was the was like did he like call up jamie Dorn and say i really wished i would have been a little bit more cray for this could you step it up for me please well i think the problem was kenneth brana would be like uh yeah you're you're overacting a little bit and then jamie Dornan would go what do you want me to say what do you want me to say i haven't got to do that in a really long time feels good doesn't it? it it felt amazing um two of the other performances that i really liked 
Emil Cotton, I believe, plays Olga Semenov, who is like the governess. She mm -hmm. hasn't hardly been in anything. Um, and well, she, I, I hardly anything I've seen, I guess I should say. And yeah. again, that is such a trope of a character. You know, she's, I mean, the same thing in Orient Express with, uh, it's like the super religious character who is uncomfortable mm -hmm. with everything that's happening. But I think she played it with so many more layers because there's an aggression to her that feels more natural. And also we get to see like, I really like her scene with Poirot where she's being uh, interrogated and she's eating. Like having to eat in a scene is hard work and to like pull it off and she does a really good job with that and like i just like really like and she, at the end she gets to do something mm -hmm. like she takes care of the boy and she she helps out some other characters and at the end of the movie i'm just so happy with her i'm just like you're such a good chick yeah i think that she gave the most believable performance in a really like it was all a, a situation that no one, literally no one has ever found themselves in. Yeah. You know, it's not something that you'd be like, oh, I can relate or I would act like this in this situation. She was very much the the earthy, grounded mm -hmm. character. And you could re relate to everything that she said and did as in, okay, that makes sense for what a, a air quotes normal person or personality would do do in such a heightened weird situation and also you were so did this lady a lot but somehow you just felt like you were being told a bedtime story yeah all of her scenes were very good yeah i really i really liked her and she was the one i kept coming back to another scene i really really liked just to talk about i think the last performance um the scene where it's like after the seance where uh, Michelle was done things that she shouldn't be able to do. And Poirot kind of confronts her still. And he's like, I, you know, I don't believe this. I, I really like how Michelle Yeoh plays that scene because it's like every, every minute or so she changes gears. Like for a minute, she feels like a con woman who is bragging that she's pulled it off. And then the next minute she's like in tears and you feel like, you know, she definitely feels something, whether or not she believes she's the real deal or not. And then the next minute, she's kind of like mocking him again. And I feel mm -hmm. like she, because the whole movie has the theme, which I think that is very well developed of, of people out on the other side of the war and pretty much post-traumatic stress disorder dealing with that. And there's some of that in her character being a nurse during the war. And she just plays, she only has a few minutes, but she just plays it so well that again, I was like, I feel like this character just, it feels real to me, even ignoring all the crazy stuff that she has to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I know I, I recently watched a Dawn French talk about how uh, for her role, and you think about how small her role is in Death on the Nile, that she was given a bunch of research to do so that her character would be real. And so when I watched performance like Michelle Yeoh and um, Camille Cotton, I feel like even though it's not like these characters are that developed because they're suspects in a mystery, you feel like they did the research and they know their character very well so that in these mm -hmm. moments they can present uh, these these characters. It's, it's crazy that I feel like, yeah, that this movie had such a bad performance in it because there are so many performances that I'm like, oh, that is like a highlight of all the movies to me. And that it has yeah. like that, that's so terrible. But I guess, you know, they all have a right. face of that. 
Yeah, but I don't like you said. Besides Army Hammer, I don't think that, and that was just there was way more going on than that. Yeah, right. But to, <laughs> but yeah, to to really be like, because that was one of the complaints that we talked about on Death on the Nile. The formula that all the critics went with was they picked one person and said, "Oh, they did an amazing job," but everyone else was crap, which isn't true. Yeah. Um, and in this one, of course, it was Michelle Yeoh. It was like Michelle Yeoh. Yo was the only one who saved this film and that is so not true she right. did a good job yes but so did many many other people yeah. not least of which the 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 kid whose name i can't oh. remember i want to call him jude jonah hill. hill and that's wrong, jude hill. wrong. <laughs> Close. i think it's jude hill yeah jonah's brother yeah he he did such a great job and <laughs> and yeah and then to have just this it's completely like off-putting just didn't that didn't fit in and i wondered about um camille cotton i wonder if she's a stage actress because oh, i feel yeah. like she brought that kind of stability um i i just wondered yeah because that's usually i, I feel like brana kind of talks that language so people who not that he doesn't know how to talk to movie stars because he does or people who do only film but i i think that he's got a special way of communicating or or people who've been in theater have a special way of understanding right um oh yeah the only other uh performance that we didn't talk about was um the the fiance which is kyle allen who's like the american uh, oh i forgot about him and i think he's decent i thought he did a really good job and mm -hmm. Again, that's another role that is extremely difficult to play, especially yeah. in a Christie film, because right. like the Americans were always so cliche. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt all of his stuff was very genuine. And he is like his um, his insights are are crucial into the whole plot. And yeah, th th thank you for bringing him up, because I thought yeah. he did a really nice job. Yeah, no, I think the I think the cast was pretty for the most part, solid, especially since a lot of not like they're unknowns, but much lesser known. Like it wasn't as much about the star power in this one. So I think that right. they they delivered pretty well. Um, was there anything like another anything significant that bugged you that you wanted to talk about or significant that you liked that you wanted to talk about? Um, I, I liked the things that they did that Poirot thought that he was losing his mind. I thought that visually they did a good job with that, making him doubt himself without being too um, obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because it started out with little things that you questioned yourself and then they grew into really big things that you had to be like, Oh, okay. E either this is, they were, you know, they're trying to convince him that it was ghosts or is it, you know, and, and, and because you rely on Poirot to always be, objective and analytical you're kind of like what's what's going on here and that's why i thought okay well it has to be it has to be mind altering because there's no right. other explanation for it and then that's that's what's led me to the honey thing but um hmm. yeah like he sees a giant m on the wall like it looks like the yeah. rainwater seeping through and it makes like an m and it like it's very very simple but um yeah. because it upsets him so much and he's always such a solid um so sure of himself that that was that was kind of interesting um like the the little kid appearing and disappearing not not the the boy 
um girl, yeah. other like random little girls showing up and it wasn't the same little girl either and that kind of bothered me um and the summing up at the end some of the flashbacks of like the second murder um that oh. wasn't in the book right Oh, there are other murders in the book, but that that one no is completely for the the film. Yeah, and so, yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. And talk that about one that felt like a see. I just it felt like a serious, serious reach to me. I mean, I know, I know what the background of it was. Is that you know that she was toying with someone who was mm-hmm. who was mentally very, very vulnerable. But it didn't, and maybe that's Jamie Dornan's fault. But yeah, it just it didn't really track with me i i think that there is an idea there um but the problem is like as the second murder like we don't really have any time to because when poirot sums that has that in the sum up like how is there any way on earth he could have known that that is what happened yeah and and there's no way we could have known that's what so like you know that murder itself there's an idea there it would need its own movie and i feel like they were like oh but but actually in the book uh, then I knew they weren't going to do this. The little boy is the next person to die. And I was like, okay, I know they're not going to kill the cute little boy in the little suit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like the uh, scene between, and Brana works so well with the, with the boy. Cause that's who he directed at Belfast. I really like the scene where he catches the boy. He's like holding Edgar Allan Poe. And he's like, Oh, isn't Poe a little scary? You should try Charles Dickens. Cause uh, for some reason, this series has made Poirot love Charles Dickens. And the boy's like, I think Charles Dickens is a little silly. And Poirot's about to like chastise him before another jump scare happens or something. But I love how Poirot's so offended. He's like, no, Charles Dickens is stupid. (laughs) It's good consistency. Yes. Yes. Um, I I really like uh, the how it ends on a positive note. We get to have that little fun uh, uh, moment of Poirot being like, "No, I'm back at it. I want to solve crimes." Um, it just it like oh it yeah, because he like taste. he walks into his house right, and there's that one guy, mm-hmm. that one poor guy who's been there since the beginning of the movie, and he was like, "Let's talk." <laughs> yeah, he leaves the door open, and then yeah, he's like summing up what he thinks is, is going to happen, and then yeah, the movie ends on that with like no Poirot's back at it and you know it's not like oh they're gonna make more movies but it's just kind of like no he's found himself again uh Mm -hmm. because you know he realizes how fun it is and like you know has learned and because you know the whole movie is about like his belief because he's lost his faith in the world and in people and in, in his whole belief system and he's able to to gain it back by solving this crime and just being in a case again um Mm -hmm. I just I like the the positive note at the end. Of course, I love uh, when again the 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 maid like sews up those loose ends. I feel like they did a good job with that too. That sometimes Christy has a hard time with those kind of loose ends. Like usually, she's just marrying somebody off. <laughs> right, right, but right, they right. Did a, yeah, <laughs> a good job of giving everybody like a happy ending that was kind of like uh, believable. Even Harry the bird who got to go along with them. <laughs> Yeah, good old Harry. Um, so I don't know what else we're going to talk about, but I want to know if you saw the review on IMDb that was a poem. No, I did not see that. <laughs> okay, well, Please I would share. like to read it to yes. you. Yes. Please. <laughs> it was called Tormenting in Venice. 
Oh Lord. Was the title. <laughs> and I'm I'm terrible at reading poetry. And it actually rhymes. It's not like you know, loose poetry. Yeah. I mean it does rhyme. I'm still really bad at the cadence. But anyway, if you're looking for a film that's clearly frightening whose lid is very loose and needs some tightening, where the characters are dull and the glass is half full, join Poirot and his grand foe that's not enlivening. Although if Kenneth and his acting troupe engaged gave the impression they weren't in it for the wage, I'd like to think it wouldn't stink, that my eyelids would not sink into a stupor more akin to older age. Poor old Agatha must be spinning in her grave. It's not just the film that needs a little save, but I guess if you're a fan, you can endure what others pan. You'll enjoy performances that disengage. Wow. <laughs> My only question is, why did someone feel the need to do it in that format? <laughs> they must like write a poem for every movie they review, and they also must be the most insufferable human being alive. <laughs> I thought they it wasn't forced though. Like they kind of tied all of their issues with it were all kind of tied in well together. They yeah, gave I it mean, four stars out of ten. But <laughs> yeah, like I mean, if you if you review a movie, it that's like any time a, a movie or a book has like a unique structure, like if it was all told in haiku, and then somebody's always gonna be clever, like, well, my review is going to be in haiku. And I'm always like, no, no. <laughs> Just tell me what you thought. <laughs> right, right. I know that's that's what I find funny. Like it had to be that someone had this idea and was like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it this way." Because if if you're like extremely angry with a film, like, I mean, th this this falls purely in like the the four to five out of ten stars range, right? Like this is this is bordering on apathy. Time, yeah. Because if you're purely angry, like I could never write a poem about yeah. how much I hate Jurassic World, at, uh, the second one. Like yeah. I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm too much emotion to put it down in verse. But this person is like, I think I, there's a poem in this. <laughs> I think we can tell from that poem that that person is unemployed. <laughs> and also it's probably better if someone other than me read it but well i think you did a nice job i would i would have snapped at the end if we didn't have such a delay <laughs> on Zoom. um no there's only two other things that i was just going to ask you which is not even about the movie it was just like in general so obviously we're not ranking because it's not a book the one thing i was going to ask you was which do you prefer venice or orient express uh i don't know i'm really bad at this and i go back and say the exact opposite thing and i know it drives you crazy it's all right i know not everybody thinks like me so i mean as far as like re-watching like i think that my my anxiety could handle watching orient express again oh, yeah. i'm not sure if it can handle watching a haunting in venice again even if i know what happens i, I forgot three-fourths of it but right. um but what about you what's your preference i i think i have to do i think venice is the best i think it's the best crafted i think it's yeah. you know and then i i just i even if orient express is I just prefer nile over orient express like i think even though it has its own issues it solves problems of and it's more entertaining i get a little bored with the middle section of orient express so i go opposite mm -hmm. order release venice nile 
Orient Express. But I don't know that I would rewatch Venice as much as I would Nile. But uh, I do think it is like the best work put into it. And if they ha- if they are ending here, which I feel like they probably will, uh, I think it's nice that they went out on a note that some people view it as the high point. Even if it was right. just like, a, this is a three star and the rest have been two, you know? Yeah. Um, And so my other question was, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but if he did get to do one more, any ideas on what you th- would like it to be? Oh, that's so tough. Why do I never, I know that you're going to ask these types of questions yeah. and I'm never, ever prepared. I'm pretty predictable. <laughs> I was like, I have, I have my one stock answer that I'm proud of and act like I just thought of every time Guy Ritchie directing the ABC. um, Which one would I like to see uh, Prana do next? Um, Wow. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I got nothing. What about you? What I would like to see is the one I thought this would might be with, which is taken at the flood. Um, what I feel like they would do because they had to have a gimmick. So this one was kind of like, it's a Halloween movie. I feel like the next gimmick would be Hercule Poirot's Christmas. And I feel like that would make a good movie, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And again, if they gave it the loose treatment, I would be perfectly fine with that. I'd also be fine if they even like did a short story or uh, like one of the mm-hmm. novellas. I think, you know, people are more forgiving when you change things because they know you have to. And right. so if they did one of like the better Poirot short stories, like The Chocolate Box or like The Dream, um, Murder in the Muse, I think that would be entertaining to see what they bring to it. And right. and I, even the one thing that is upsetting to me, even like not even like, oh, I need Kenneth Branagh to make another one, but I just always want to see who is going to be cast in the next one. And I, you know, I don't know that we'll get that. Right. Because it, it is, yeah. it is kind of like the, like a menu of like, oh, there's too many good choices. I can't, like, I'm so excited about this, yeah. this, this, and this. He, he's a great at um, picking people. But I think another thing you said that each one has like a, a theme or a flavor to it. I think that where he's put himself right now, as far as his performance as Poirot, he absolutely could do one of the espionage stories Mm-hmm. because they even if they make terrible books yeah they they have the potential for being good on screen and, and you could change it yeah yes and i think if i think if ken was allowed to get a hold of the big four because he no hear me uh, out okay okay <laughs> because we've talked about this before he has so much energy he's a younger poirot mm-hmm. um he's not you you know, sitting as much, he gets up and he runs around and he's got a lot of uh, dynamic to him. I think that he could make that story believable mm-hmm. as Poirot could actually be involved. And there's sure. a lot you'd still have to fix, like like Hastings being like completely like his absolute pinnacle of, of moronic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and but like, and not even... You, you we wouldn't have to keep the entire storyline because that just doesn't work. The storyline just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but they could make the arc believable. Like it could be because it's always concentrated in these little tiny um 
uh, itty bitty family problems, like these these micro tragedies, you know. But but this it would like you know you know world domination and and secret powers at work and stuff like that. I think that he could have a lot of fun with that mm-hmm. and and make it believable and not in a in a um parody or a camp yeah. sort of way, but in like he he could sell it. And it definitely would be a new direction than the last three. It would be something completely different. I I, I just like the idea of what they did here of even though it is a very loose uh version of it. I would like for them to pick from later Christie, just because when have those gotten a chance? When would they ever get a chance? And because, you know, we're not going to see like the clocks on the big screen or Mrs. McGinty's dead because it doesn't have a right. gimmick that's going to bring people into the theaters like Orient Express or Death in the Nile, where they they just need to hear the title and they kind of get the idea. But mm-hmm. he could take something like that. And I'm perfectly fine if he takes the clocks to. I don't know, some location like Antarctica or something like that, just so that that Christie story can see the big screen in some form. Like, I'm okay yeah. with playing fast and loose. It's uh, as long as you're making interesting choices and not just lazy ones. Right. Yeah. Which I don't think he would ever do. He puts a lot of thought into everything that he does. But I'd like to see, you know, I'm okay if this is it. I would like to see somebody, and maybe if even he directs and does not star in, somebody try to find a way to bring Miss Marple to the big screen because that hasn't been yeah. done since the 60s. And Yeah, which they, is sad because there's yeah. so much potential there. That was in one of the reviews that I read of, you know, the, the typical re- response of like, right. we don't need this. We have David Suchet and we have Joan Hickson. And I'm like, Joan Hickson? That's going back away. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and, it would be nice to see, yeah, like a not Meryl Streep as oh, Miss Marvel, but, you I'm know, somebody. <laughs> but, you know, and those movies are so, I mean, the books, you know, we don't usually have Miss Marvel in like the super exotic or this, the real punchy hooks. So the, it's harder to make a big, but if you're making like an independent studio, yeah, they could make it work. We'll see. I'd like to see that, but uh, yeah. I, I don't think we're going to get a Tommy and Tuppence movie. Um, <laughs> no, but we can not. get another. And then there were none because that hasn't been done in a long time. And that's yeah. easy or death right. comes as the end. Come on. <laughs> that would be awesome. <sighs> so uh, this, yeah, who knows when our next movie review is. I'm hoping not too far. I'm hoping we get a new, there's no, on no Christie movie in production currently i mean there's always shows but you can't beat yeah cinema i guess (laughs) i guess the next thing that we would probably talk about is the new adaptation of murder is easy yeah whenever u.s audiences can watch it (laughs) and i think it's supposed to be out in february so we should be able to talk about that shortly and i'm excited too because uh that one has not gotten its due on the screen and it's nice to see it get a swing at it yeah, and it's the um it has some really solid star power as far as yeah. the UK goes. Maybe yeah. not so well known to American audiences, but definitely if you follow British television and if you just if you follow Christie. Oh yeah. In British television. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's like, ooh. Well, this, yeah. This is exciting. Right. 
star studded. <laughs> um, yeah, just to sign out this episode, uh, I know we froze up a lot. Charlotte's kind of frozen for me right now. <laughs> I think she's there. Maybe try turning your camera off. It was probably my fault. Sorry. You're good. Um, yeah. Now at the very end. Now the last, the sign out is going to sound awesome. I, maybe I should have said turn your camera off earlier, but that's okay. There's a little bit of delay, but hopefully I'm, I'm glad we finally got to talk about this movie. Um, and yes. hopefully we get back into the swing of things with the pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I really hope so too. And we always, always have things to say. <laughs> We never will not. Keep listening, folks.